When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jill Bylosky, author of the novel The Deceptions. I thought it would be interesting to have her teach all boys, since part of the investigation of the novel is also about the patriarchy. We'll be back with Jill Bylosky after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest, there is so much free content out there and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers to donate today. 
Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is poet, novelist, essayist, and editor Jill Bylosky. She is the author of six collections of poetry, three novels, and two memoirs, including History of a Suicide, My Sister's Unfinished Life, which was a New York Times bestseller. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly, Harper's O Magazine, and The Harvard Review, among others. She is also an executive editor and vice president at W.W. Norton & Company. Her new novel, The Deceptions, explores female sexuality and ambition and storytelling, those that we tell ourselves and those we present to the world. The Deception focuses on an unnamed female narrator who is a poet and a teacher at a boys' private school in New York City. Her life is unraveling as her only child has left home to attend college, her 20-year marriage is strained, and she anticipates her soon-to-be-released new collection of poetry. She seeks answers to the paradoxes of love, desire, and parenthood among the Greek and Roman gods at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. During her time in the museum, she is haunted by memories of a friendship she made with a visiting poet who was teaching at her school. Throughout the novel, secret betrayals and deceptions come to light and rage threatens to overwhelm her, and she looks to reality and myths to save her. The novel looks at issues of privacy, the patriarchy, and appropriation in art and literature. We began the discussion with me asking Jill Bylosky this question. So I think I wanted to start somewhere kind of deep about the deceptions, which is I just wanted to talk about female ambition and female agency, because one of the things that I detected in the deceptions is that agency does not match ambition in your narrator's (laughs) case. Yes, that's so interesting um, and very well observed. I think that when I was writing the novel, I was really thinking about ambition and agency um, more in the sense that I recognized um, that my protagonist had really been struggling with with agency. And I was... um, I was searching for answers to how that develops in a in a woman and where what what is the source. So in some ways I obviously I turned to some of the Greek myths and um, the gods and goddesses to try and find the origins of of agency for women. And, you know, it's just interesting because my protagonist really is unaware in, in some ways. I, I, I wanted to make her a character who was, you know, not wholly aware of, of her actions and where they take her. So that was one of the questions that I was posing for myself. Um, she's ambitious. She's a poet. She's had two books published to some nice acclaim, and yet she still feels as if she hasn't achieved the kind of recognition that she hopes for. And so she's been working on this 
new book, this this long poem called The Rape of the Swan. And when the book opens, she's anticipating the release of, of that book and um, hoping that it will be well received and perhaps open new doors for her. What do you think it is? And I know your book was really examining this and has more questions than answers. But that when a woman like your narrator, who's generally unnamed, we do kind of know her name, but she's unnamed, um, is smart. She's a, a good poet. She really is operating at a high level in her field, even if she doesn't have the confidence to know it. She's she's still there doing the work. Like why that self-belief is so in doubt and it's not just about her poetry it's about her marriage about her mothering about what kind of neighbor she is what kind of teacher she is it's like everything feels in peril yes um well I did want to um in some ways I feel like um the kinds of novels that I like are novels that um open in a sense of chaos or crisis and that everything hinges on whether or not the character is going to find answers or how she's going to negotiate the crisis and where where it will lead her. So I'm the kind of writer that I don't always know where I'm headed but I knew that when I started this book that it would begin in a crisis where, yes, she's um, she's in a precarious place in her marriage after her only child has has um, left for college. And in some ways, that period allows her to e- examine herself and the past. And I was recently thinking about Virginia Woolf and um, her novel, Mrs. Dalloway, that also in a way opens with a crisis and um, and also is a book that reflects both forward and backward. So my main character is moving forward in her life as a teacher, as a poet, as a wife, even though her marriage is strained. But she's also reflecting back um, to a crisis that happened and wondering how that crisis, how it's going to affect her in the future. And um, she's also thinking back to who she is as a, you know, she's in a way in an, in an identity crisis as well. You know, one of the things you said that you look to in in the search for her to sort of figure out her agency or figure out where she is in the world is that she looked back to the Greek myths. So an important part of your, of your novel is that this um, unnamed narrator poet goes to the Metropolitan Museum almost daily in the book to go sit in front of uh, sculptures, sometimes um, a drawing, but usually it's something that's 3D where she's looking at all of these different depictions of strength and virility in men and some kind of compromise in, in women from Leda to the, and the swan to Hercules to 
all of these different stories. And why why was that the place that you landed for her to try to find her agency? And why the physical objects instead of just the stories? Why the art? Well, you know, part of that is where the book began for me, that um, one day I was by myself. And this is an interesting story, but there is a legendary editor, um, Harry Ford at Knopf, um, who who published my first book of poetry. And he was an incredibly um, brilliant. And he once told me the story that him and his wife every Sunday would go across the park um, to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and that was their religion. And they they had this ritual where they did it every Sunday, and then they went out for brunch. And I just loved that idea. And so I found myself also finding this kind of solace and comfort in going to the museum. And I'm very lucky because it's not too far for me to get there. So I did have this ritual of going to the museum. And when I was thinking about this novel, um, I, I was going into the Greek and Roman rooms and I was just all of a sudden staggered by these, these enormous, some of them are these enormous, powerful sculptures of these gods and goddesses. Um, and at the same time, I was actually rereading the Odyssey because a new translation came out by Emily Wilson. And of course, it's the first translation of the Odyssey by a woman. So that really interested me. And I was listening to it on audio. And and sometimes when you listen to actually Claire Danes is the narrator, and it was an incredible um, audio experience. But for some audio books, the characters, or in this case, the Greek and Roman gods and Odysseus, they really come alive. And so it was kind of that dual visual of the actual statues and sculptures, and then listening to the Odyssey that gave me kind of agency into this novel, into this novel about, you know, a midlife and examination. So I was really lucky <laughs> that those two um those the those two aspects kind of intersected. And then years ago a wonderful writer friend Frederick Bush, who's no longer with us, he told me once about, you know, writing fiction that the first thing you have to do for your character is to give them a job. So that had stayed with me. And so I decided that my protagonist's job would be that she would be a teacher. And I thought it would be interesting to have her teach all boys, since part of the investigation of the novel is also about the patriarchy and the sort of collisions between men and women and, you know, this kind of search for the answer why, you know, why is there this kind of divide and intersection and intersection? So for me, that was kind of a playful nod. So that's sort of how the setup began. And, you know, I, I am a great lover of art. And and so in this novel, too, I, I had this idea that I really just my narrator, um, some people may not like her. She's not necessarily there to be liked, um, that, you know, she is, um, she, she 
you know, the deception. She also is dealing with her own self-delusions in some ways. Yeah, so I wanted to kind of take more risks with that voice to to just, as I said, open with a crisis um, where she's really trying to hold herself together, um, you know, throughout the book that really just takes place over, I think, three or four months. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It reads kind of like a fever dream. She's in acute distress the whole time, but there's also a very, like a dreamlike quality. I think because you're so deep in her head and you're really in her thoughts and you don't hold back her questions and her thinking sometimes goes from one thing to another, just like human thought does. And so you really feel very intimate with her. And I'm also hearing from you that you like the Greek art, that you started out as a poet. So I can't help but think that you're also folded into her. So I wanted to ask you about the blending of that, these aspects of your life, which might just be the truth of what it feels like to be human, not that it's a depiction of your life per se, but just writing that way, how you went about that and if it impacted you? Like, did you start feeling like fever dreamish in your real life? Uh, thank you, Mitzi. Um, I do think of the novel as a as a fever dream. And, and yes, that's definitely what I was going for. You know, that sense of urgency and rawness. And actually, this is the first novel that I wrote in the first person, which is really tricky, I discovered. Um, but yet writing in the first person did allow me to get very close to my character and to to create that sense of intimacy, to get into her heart and feelings, even when she may be um, a little dramatic. And my character, yes, in some ways, I think, represents many of the questions that concern me as a woman, um, as a mother, as a wife, as an artist, and also as a, a citizen in the world. And I think the main pressing concern when I started writing this novel was that I wanted to write about the patriarchy and how the systemic and institutional patriarchy has shaped us even subliminally um, as women. Um, We're not even aware of, of, in fact, how the patriarchy has shaped us. So my character, as you know, is in a crisis when the novel opens, and I I wanted to write about how the impact of the patriarchy influenced her, and so I had to come up with a situation that would precipitate an outcome, and in the end, I hope, a sense of agency for her. And um, in this case, I created this uh, a violation that happens that the reader doesn't know about at the beginning of the novel exactly what violation is, but it has impacted the crisis. 
And I wanted the violation to have tentacles outward that the reader doesn't quite know what kind of violation it was. So yeah, just to, to get back to your point, quite directly, um, my character is fully fictional. And of course, when you create a fictional character, uh, the anger and emotions are are all her own. Um, she, in my mind, um, as I was writing the book, this character sort of li lifted off the page and became my doppelganger. I hope that makes some sense to you. So how how was that for you at the end of a writing day? Like, did it bring things up? Was it cathartic? Could you just put it down? What was the experience? Oh, I really felt very energized writing this book um, because I, I was tapping into some of my own anger when I was writing some of this novel. It was, you know, right before the Me Too movement and then into it. Um, I mean, I already had, I think, a draft of it. But I did feel a great sense of anger thinking about what women suffer in the face of the patriarchy and how we have to negotiate ourselves around the patriarchy. And so, you know, to me, the novel can be funny. I don't know if you had any sense of it, but I would sometimes laugh <laughs> at this character and what she was thinking and feeling. Um, so no, you know, if anything, I had fun writing it because I was using also the, the myths and I was relearning them and rethinking some of these myths. And, you know, I was also playing with the wonderful Yeats poem, Lita and the Swan that you mentioned earlier. And so as I was writing the book, I was so kind of intellectually immersed in it. Yeah, I, I definitely did not feel overcome. If anything, I was sort of pushing her emotions further, um, which I think you have to sometimes do in fiction in order to allow the reader to enter into the experience. You know, you you mentioned the violation and... I think she's violated in, in more than one way in this book. And, you know, as humans in the world and as women in the world, we have, you know, we have our bodies, we have our minds, we have our spirits, and there's lots of ways that you can, you know, others can violate you. And one of the things that was really strong in the book, which, which you often want in, in fiction anyways, is like yearning and longing I think there was so much longing in this character. And mm. I'm wondering if violation like speeds up longing. Mm. That's interesting. You know, I think that the, my character is sort of walking on a tightrope in a way because um, she's teaching at, at, at an all boys school, um, high school. And she's been in this position for a while and she's led, you know, a life of taking care of her child, of working and also wanting time for her art, for her poetry to create. And she's in a, you know, a tight bond with her family, with her marriage, with her husband and her son. And this visiting poet comes to her institution where she teaches um, for a year. And somebody called him a bad artist friend, <laughs> which I 
find very funny. But in fact, you know, she's very conflicted about this, this person who sort of, you know, has a big boisterous personality. And, you know, he's a respected poet. And he's, he's a poet that, um, unlike her, is not afraid of ambition. So that goes back to your earlier question about ambition and agency. And this visiting poet has agency or at least creates it for for himself. And she's working on this long book that and she's sort of mesmerized by him and how, you know, he has that belief in his work and in himself. And he's also quite seductive. And so, you know, I wanted to allow her to see him in many different shades, as it were. And I think that um, what sped up the longing was that um, for this character was that the visiting poet is attracted to her and is not afraid of showing it. And she's protective of her of her marriage, of her child, and, you know, is wanting to set limits. But she's also in a place where she's also desiring and full of longing. So I'm not sure. I think it was in, in a way the longing became truncated once this sort of violation happens. That's how I see it. I think, too, her relationship with the visiting poet, you know, they're friends. She feels like she has, in some ways, a kindred spirit, someone who understands what poetry means, someone who she can talk to who is in her field. Her husband is a scientist. He's very pragmatic, um, and she's working on something much deeper. And you have some pages, I think, um, that really embody their entire relationship and what it means <laughs> about writing. He's kind of asking her why she writes and she's talking about that it's not that simple, but that she's wanted to write ever since she can remember. It was a des desire unnameable. It was a need. And he says, so you do it to satisfy a longing. And then she's thinking about that. And she said, maybe, you know, sure, to inspire, to release a numbness, to feel alive. And then my cheeks grew hot. Was he mocking me? And then when you get into his part, and I was wondering if you wanted to read just a little bit from page 107. Sure. It wasn't enough. He persisted. So your swan at dusk, the act of writing is to yearn desperately for it, even as the swan disappears into the darkness. Is that right? Is that how the poem becomes the manifestation of yearning? He turned to me searching. Is that what you see in it? I said, unnerved. What was he after? What about you? I said, why do you do it? My reasons are not as complex. It's a drive. I write for power, he said. Yeah, I write for rage. He got excited and stood up. I look for inspiration outside myself, not like you. I don't delve inside. His head nearly touched the low ceiling in the teacher's lounge. Yes, I write for fame, too. I'm not afraid of it like you are, he said sitting back down. You cloak fear behind modesty. He moved to the edge of the couch to be able to look at me more deeply. 
I felt small next to his hulking body, his thighs the circumference of a sapling, those monstrous hands. I moved an inch or so away so as not to be further encroached. I had never thought of it that way before. Was he right or was he teasing me? I couldn't quite figure him out or know what to expect. Like a day when the snow threatens, clouds weigh in, and you don't know exactly what will happen. Will the snow be light or heavy and wet? Or maybe the low clouds were only a ruse. Thank you for pointing out that scene because you're right that what she really loves about the visiting poet is their friendship and, you know, their connection. And also, um, you know, he he is making her think about her own um, intentions as a writer and why she does what she does, which is a question that she probably hadn't thought about before. And um, he also taps into this I, this observation about her about her modesty and um and so as the novel progresses their friendship does hinge on on um on this connection about um you know poetry and um she's so elated to to find someone who she can share these thoughts with that have really since graduate school um, been unattended to, unattended to in some ways. Um, and, and so for her, that is very exciting. I think this conversation, though, is also like if you were going to do analysis of poets having a conversation, it's like men are from Mars and women are from Venus in the, in the poetry world. Um, Uh I mean, they're coming from such different places, you know, she is all about her own inspiration. What moves her like almost on an emotional visceral level. And he's just about power and, and what the outside world has to offer. And it's like, they're speaking two different languages. Yes, yes. And that's something that um, I did go to graduate school. I went to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop in the 80s, and I truly did experience that sort of divide. Um, And in some ways, you know, the visiting poet just embodies so many different encounters that I've witnessed. Um, You know, he's kind of an amalgamation of, you know, a male poet who has this sense of bravado that almost feels like it came first, came before the writing, came before the the actual need to create. And, um, you know, my character, the need came first and she she hasn't developed a bravado that she questions whether all artists need to, to create that persona. So, yeah, I, again, for me, it was, um, these two characters were sort of a way to channel and investigate that act of witness for me. I think too, that, that while I obviously, I noticed it, I I wrote it down while I was, you know, taking notes on the book and I was like, I really want to talk about this. But it also, um, 
like I could also pass it by and keep reading the book and realize that there were tentacles in there that sort of set the seeds for what happened in their relationship later. And I'm wondering how you feel about people reading your book twice to find deeper meaning and Mm -hmm. should books be read more than once to get their full meaning? Mm -hmm. You know, I think some books and maybe the books that I like to read um, might require that, you know, I mean, not to compare myself to or, or my work to, to Henry James or to Virginia Woolf, but I find that, you know, maybe every few years, I find that I want to reread Portrait of a Lady um, by Henry James, which is just such, you know, such a interesting, evolving novel that kind of books can evolve as you evolve as a reader. And, you know, you can experience them in, in a different way, depending on where you are in your own life. You know, so I wanted this book to have some layers to it that, you know, you could read it in one sitting because I do think it's compelling once you are situated in the novel that I I do feel you want to find out what, you know, the novel opens um, with in in a a sentence in the first paragraph or the end of the first paragraph, um, something terrible has happened and I don't know what to do. So I feel like the novel can just be read to find out <laughs> what happened, you know. Um, but then I did want it to work just for myself on on different levels of meaning and thought. It grew more complex as I was thinking further into some of the themes that I wanted to articulate in the novel. So as a reader, I think I like both kinds of books. I like books that you can read and in one day and feel um, that you don't want the book to end. You, you just want to stay with the character. And then, you know, books that are more complex and drive you back into it again um, to see what you may have missed. So I'm hoping my reader could have have it either way. <laughs> So with the violations that happened to her and her her burgeoning relationship with the visiting poet that that had to end because he was only there for a year anyway, I'm curious about sort of redemption and time, because there are some things that also happen in the book that reveal or help bring context to some of those violations, not all of them, but some of them over a much longer view of time. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about when we get our due, that sometimes it takes time to see what only people really close to you were able to see was the truth in the beginning or how our thoughts evolve as a society over time to realize what the truth of maybe certain situations were. And I wanted to ask you about this, like both as a device in your book, but more so as, um, you know, you're talking about the Me Too movement and and the legacy that uh, certain things in our history will bring from from the Greek myths all the way, you know, to to that movement. So I just wanted to ask you about 
you know, the slow revelation of, of what is real and true and good. Yes. Thank you, Mitzi. That's a complex um, question, but I understand where it's coming from completely. Um, and, um, you know, I think at some point writing the novel, I was thinking about, um, well, my character suffers from several violations, really. I didn't want the novel to end as her being a victim. I wanted her to have to gain her agency. And in real time, um, you know, the visiting poet has violated her in a certain way, both sexually and in essence, kind of literally, you know, he's he's taken something very important from her. I don't I don't want to totally reveal it. Um, and she really is so angry and feels as if all of the loyalty that she felt toward visiting poet is shattered and that he used her in some way. And um, and she really feels that her only recourse is to um, to use that assault. And I, I'm saying assault in a maybe a more metaphorical sense as well. She has to use that to gain her own agency. And so I imagine at the end of the novel that she's really has been transformed by that act. And if if I was going to write her in the next, you know, into the next 10 years, I would imagine that she's in a much different place than she was when the book began, that she has gained her agency in as in in terms of her ambitions and her sense of morality and owning her femininity as an asset rather than as a something that she has to always protect you know i'm at this stage in life where i feel it's very important for me to mentor younger women in any way that i can and in a way i wanted the novel to be a cautionary tale but also a story about, you know, what happens to the next generation. So my character is probably two generations ahead of her neighbor's daughter, who she mentors when the daughter is a young girl. So, you know, my hope in terms of the time frame of the book is that this young girl may not have had to have gone through as much as my character had to go through in order to own her own agency. So there is a sort of victory in in a way, I hope. I hope that that comes through. There's a sense of redemption in some way um, for what happened to her, but but through another person. You know, it's just interesting when you think about appropriation. It's a big theme. It's a lot to think about. But, um, you know, the way in which certain people get credit for a work of art and others are diminished by it. As a writer, we never can control how our work is going to be received. So in the end, it's, you know, it's the way in which what we hoped for the the book is the victory <laughs> in the end. And um, so it's complicated. Yeah. 
I mean, it's really complicated because you were saying not at all that it's a good thing the violations happened because she came out stronger and that she wants to mentor other women so they don't have to go through that. But at the same time, you're sharing all these Greek myths, like couldn't Lita have been enough for us? Like couldn't what (laughs) happened to the Greek goddesses been enough for us to not ever have to have another violation against us again, to be strong, to have agency, to claim our ambition, to have our voice in the world be as powerful as it is inside of us. And it seems like as a society, we're, we're still not there. Yes, I totally agree, Mitzi. It's Oh, it's kind of mind-boggling how that is still the case. You know, I, I think for me, that was some of the risk in writing this book, because I do think that that there are people who feel that it's all solved, <laughs> you know, that, that um, you know, women have equality now, but psychologically, emotionally, um, not so sure. I think another question in the book was really like, what is love? And pertaining especially to her relationship with her husband, because this visiting poet came and they connected on a certain level and there was new energy and she didn't have that with her husband and her husband was a scientist and they had really different minds. But like, there's still this this question, I think, that the book gives you, which is like, what what is love? Like her husband was just, like a much simpler, calmer presence for her, you know, supported her, like didn't maybe read her work, but, but would bring her toothbrush to her when she was packing to go somewhere. And I think she was really struggling with that. And you, you also have a line in there where you say marriage is a geological problem. Two forces of competing desires create instability in a rock formation. So I just wanted to ask you about this question about love and marriage and if I read, if I was reading it right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it is a question that constantly feels like it's evolving. You know, this idea of how love evolves from the early passionate days and how it evolves through becoming um, a parent and how that affects the um, the relationship between a wife and a husband. And I think in my novel, the husband and uh, my protagonist are so in love with this child that the child in some ways has consumed them. And, and I see this happening, you know, when you're raising young children, that kind of some of the energy, some of the passionate energy that a couple has gets sort of transferred into the child in some ways because they're also um, have many pulls on their lives as you know working parents and um, and so um, what happens when the child is suddenly grown up and they're face to face with each other again and can that love be found can that the love I imagine with my characters is always there. It's just, can they find a way of getting back to each other again? And I wanted to leave that sort of open-ended in the novel. 
But I do think that as we evolve through life, our relationship to what love means evolves. And sometimes, at least for my protagonist, she comes to it in a painful way. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, you know, I was thinking about that question, and um, I feel like there's so many um, that I can't even begin to pinpoint one. So I thought I would just read a passage from um, one of Solomon Rushdie's books, because I've been thinking about him all week, as I'm sure you are and many of your listeners will be. Um, And so there's a passage from his novel, The the ground beneath her feet that I really love. Um, So I'll read that. Five mysteries hold the keys to the unseen, the act of love and the birth of a baby and the contemplation of great art and being in the presence of death or disaster and hearing the human voice lifted in song. These are the occasions when the bolts of the universe fly opened and we are given a glimpse of what is hidden, an F of the ineffable. Glory bursts upon us in such hours, the dark glory of earthquakes, the slippery wonder of life, the radiance of Venus singing. And I love that because I feel like that paragraph um, is really so much about um, what's required in creating art too. Um, the five mysteries that hold the keys to the unseen. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, I was thinking about that as well. Um, for the And I wanted to read something from the deceptions, although that scene that you pinpointed was certainly one that was challenging for me. Um, but there's another scene that I thought I would read about Lita about where my protagonist and the visiting poet are discussing the poem, um, Lita and the Swan, the Yeats poem, um, because they're both coming at it through very different um, lenses or very, um, so I will, I'll read a little scene from that. We were quiet. I looked out the window the rest of the way to the store and let him sulk. On the drive back to the mansion, we passed a serene lake, its ground surrounded by another mansion. Perhaps it was private. We exited the car and sat underneath a stand of dogwoods just beginning to flower into their umbrella of pink, though surely we were trespassing, and we watched two swans with their long, seamless necks parading in the lake. I was deep into the writing of my long poem by then and had been struggling with the ending sequence and finding the pair of swans in the lake then at that moment felt weirdly clandestine. Yeats's Lita in the Swan came to me. The sonnet as a form was constructed for themes of love, but in Lita and the Swan, the subject is violation. That subversion of the form is brilliant, I recall I said, or something like it, as the light played fancifully, sneaking in and out of the tree branches, their leaves curling to receive it. The swans flirting with each other at the lake, the tulips and daffodils waving in the breeze. Why a violation? 
Yates wants it double-edged. Lita is enjoying the abduction, he said. Really? The great wings beating, the staggering girl, the dark webs, her nape caught in his bill, her helpless breast, strange heart beating. Doesn't sound like my idea of pleasure, I said. He put his hand on my heart. It was beating quickly. Then he ran his hand up and down my arms. Look, you have goosebumps. Come closer, he said, and put his arm around me. He leaned into me, that shudder in the loins, he said, and then placed my hand on his erection. So I could go on, but writing that this scene that I think um, unfolds in a very dramatic way um, toward the end of that chapter, um, you know, uh, took a lot of constructing and deconstructing to get it right. Um, because, of course, I was trying to imbue um, their relationship to one another, along with um, um, their interpretation of the poem. <laughs> Where do you write? So I'm, um, you know, I'm a kind of person that can really write anywhere as long as I have my now uh, my computer with me. But I, I really prefer um, writing uh, at the dining room table um, is, um, you know, um, living in New York city for so many years. Um, um, I never really quite have had yet that room of my own, which I'm aiming for very, very soon. Um, but the dining room table is, is a great place to write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Yes, I well, I I have a yoga practice that that I um, enjoy, and I also um, like to garden and to take long walks, to listen to books on audio, playing with my adorable puppy Sophia, who takes me out of my head, and um, swimming. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Well, that's also, that's a very um, tricky question. I tend to wait till I'm pretty far along in a project um, to show another reader because I am very susceptible to, to what someone will say. And I often fear that I might make changes that I'm not fully confident are the right changes. Um, but I would say that um, I have a very um, good friend who's a writer that I admire, um, who's a first reader for me. How have you dealt with rejection? I've dealt with rejection by plowing forward. And what is your favorite word? Beauty. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mitzi. This was really wonderful. I appreciate it. If you like today's show with Jill Bylosky, author of the novel The Deceptions, check out my interview with Emma Glass, author of the novel Rest and Be Thankful. We talked about how writing made her more creative as a pediatric nurse, focusing on the aim of a story and writing about grief and insomnia. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 370 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. 
Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Stacey Durasmo, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.